Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, obesity medicine physician scientist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and at Harvard University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Well, thank you so much, Max, for having me. It's a delight to be here talking about issues surrounding disparities, obesity. Um, this is really, you know, where I see myself in really the intersection of the work that I do. Um, so just a little bit about me. Um, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, did a lot of my training in Atlanta. I saw that hand threw up. So born and raised there, product of the Atlanta public school system. Um, did my undergraduate and my first master's degree in public health um, at Emory University in Atlanta. Um, then worked in public health. I worked at the um, American Cancer Society, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then I worked at a rate crisis center for two years um, before going into medical school at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. And then I took a little bit of a detour. I actually went directly into orthopedic surgery, did a sports medicine fellowship in New York City, um, and then switched to um, doing residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of South Carolina, after which I made my way up to Boston to do a three-year obesity medicine and nutrition fellowship here at Mass General at Harvard Medical School. And in the final year, I did what I thought was my fourth and final degree um, as a mid-career at the um, Master of Public Administration student at the Harvard um, Kennedy School of Government as a Zuckerman Fellow, but um, I can tell you I am working on my fifth degree now as an MBA because why not, you know? Um, so um, it is a delight to be here and I can usually talk on most issues. And so I'm very much happy to, to be able to talk on these issues that are really germane to what we're experiencing every day. Um, it's a delight to have you. I've been following you for a while. Um, you're like kind of internet famous. <laughs> um, I went to grad school at Georgia Tech, so I, I, Atlanta oh, is like yeah. my second home. I want to move back one day, so um, right. We can home. afford a lot more house. Let me tell you, compared to Boston, I I, I would have like you know a palace. Um, I tell my parents that they would love for me to move back. So <laughs> the whole family is still there. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about obesity today, um, especially given the moment we're in, um, related to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, so whenever when when we started hearing about um, the epidemiology related to COVID-19 mor uh, mortality and morbidity, um, one of the first things that came out is Black people are disproportionately represented amongst those who are dying um, of COVID-19. Uh, and of course, for some people, their minds immediately raced to uh, you know, what other data already existed. So you know, we started saying, well, Black people uh, have higher rates of hypertension. Um, it's, you know, like all those sort of like high risk um, comorbidities that we know increase pe uh, people's chances of dying of COVID-19. Right, um, exactly. But there ha the, uh, it took Black journalists and Black scientists and Black physicians to say, wait a minute now, there's this whole issue of um, structural racism, right, that is at mm -hmm. the root of all mm -hmm. of this. Now, mm -hmm. uh, journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones um, mm -hmm. sort of like spoke at length about this on Twitter. Um, and some of the responses she got were related to obesity. Um, people kind of dismissed everything she said about, for example, the fact that black people have the lowest car ownership rate in the country, which like overexposes you to um, you know, any given airborne pathogen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And someone said, well, black people are just more, ob uh, more likely to be obese or something along those lines, right? Um, which in itself was problematic. And so I want to get into that with you. So how do we dispel this notion, uh, or at least the fact that we just kind of blame 
every ailment that black people face to um, on obesity and like the sort of personal responsibility thing. Well, so I think one of the things that we first have to do is recognize that obesity in and of itself is not a personal responsibility issue. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's where we, where we go wrong. People think that people choose to have excess body mass. And on average, most people have excess body mass because of their genetic predispositions to having it. So mm -hmm. I always like to talk about this issue of weight and its heritability. So what we do know is that weight is more heritable than height. And mm. so I'm going to repeat that again. So weight is more heritable than height. That means if we have, let's say, two very tall parents, let's say you have a father that's six foot eight inches and a mother that's six foot two, we anticipate that they will have tall, tall children if they were mm -hmm. to me, let's just say, right? The likelihood that they'll have a, a daughter or a son that's four foot 11, it could happen. You know, anything could happen. But we think about issues like mid-parental height, right? You know, if you go back to that, that thought process and the likelihood is pretty low. What we do know about um, weight and its heritability is that it's much more heritable than height, okay? So if we're looking at patients that have obesity, the likelihood of them passing it off to another generation is very, very high. So what we're seeing is on the order of between 60 to 85% heritability of excess weight, all right? So that means that way before they get on this earth, before I can think about breastfeeding them for the first year of life, before I can think about pureeing their baby foods from fresh vegetables, I have already predisposed those children to obesity. And what we do know if we're looking at, for example, obesity within the black community, and I'm going to focus on black women because that's the group that I represent, is that we do know about 60% of African-American women or black women, whichever terminology you'd like to use, have obesity here in the United States. That's the reality. And we have another 20% that have overweight, which means that 80% of black women in the United States have overweight and obesity. I just told you this was highly heritable. Now, I, I haven't talked about my black men, Max. I'm not neglecting you guys, but, my, <laughs> you know, but I wanted to focus on that demographic because I think it points out that when we're dealing with this, the likelihood of them passing on these, this, this heritability to their children is very, very high. So yes, blacks, Latinos, Hispanics, Latinx community, whichever you want to use, do have much, much, much higher rates of obesity. Genetics playing a large role in that, but there are other influences that play a role. Um, and so we have to think about the genetic piece just passing on from generation to generation. But there are actually large studies coming out of organizations like the NIH that are looking at what we call genome-wide association studies and looking mm -hmm. at the difference um, at the genome level of excess BMI or higher BMIs. There was a large study that came out of NIH, I think 2018, the first GWAS study to look at really large segments of the population, both in Africa, so Nigeria, Kenya um, and Ghana, and then also looking at groups here in the United States, persons that are of African descent here, but they also looked at Caucasians and they looked at Asians. And what they found was that there were certain um, genomes that were only present in those that were either born and raised in those three African countries or were African descendants here in the United States that they did not see at all in whites and Asians. And I mean, we can get really kind of you know specific there, but I, I really want to point that out. So we know we have this high heritability. Now, let's talk about this idea of structural racism and how it plays a role in this higher level of overweight and obesity within our community, because I think that does play a role. What we know from the Jackson Heart Study, which is one of the largest studies looking at persons of color here in the United States, is that patients that experience or subjects within that study that experience racism and internalize that racism had on average much higher BMIs than those that did not. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's important for us to recognize that when we experience racism, it does cause a stress response, increase inflammation, then leads to increased storage of adipose, adipose being fat tissue. So there is, so, you know, I think we have to, you have to pay attention to like the, the genetics, we have to pay attention to the racism piece. All of these are showing you how multifactorial this idea of obesity is within our community. And so let's tie it into COVID-19. COVID-19, an acute pathogen, right, that we're experiencing. Patients that have obesity have higher levels of inflammation at baseline. Patients that happen to be Black that have obesity may have even higher because they're experiencing not only their obesity, but issues such as racism on a daily basis, which then predisposes them to worse outcomes with morbidity and mortality. I'll stop there, Max, because I could keep going, but I, I wanted to kind of tie these all together. Yes. So, um, you know, you mentioned the, the, the specific genes or, uh, um, that were identified in um, individuals of African descent in this uh, genome-wide association study. Um, and so it makes me think of how we use BMI um, as, a, as a proxy for, um, you know, for for weight status. Mm -hmm. So I was just listening to this interview um, with uh, Professor Sabrina Strings. She's a sociologist. And she wrote this book, Fearing the Black Body, um, about the origins of fat phobia in our society. And and it was, I had never heard of that until then. I mean, I knew as a medical student that BMI is kind of a flawed metric Mm -hmm. uh, or measure. but she spoke on the origins of BMI and how thinness way back when, like even in the early stage or early like years of formation of like US society, thinness was like supposed to be this like good that right, associated right. with good trait associated with like whiteness. Um, mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about sort of that evolution, you know, knowing that history of how you know, BMI was was basically mm-hmm. created to classify people um, into, like, at least in those times, like good or bad based on right. their weight, um, and how we continue to use it today, and I guess what better what measure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so actually, um, all of the BMI standards come out of the life insurance data. So actuaries actually came up with BMI, not physicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important for us to recognize that. And um, when they did this, they were trying to discern like which groups were easier to insure, right? Which mm-hmm. groups um, had seemed to have less medical issues based upon height and weight cutoffs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that obviously BMI is universally used, but there, there are some flaws. And I talk about this. I actually wrote a paper that was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings where I redrew the BMI ca- um, categories based upon comorbid conditions, particularly hypertension, dyslipidemia. And I looked at black men, white men, um, and Hispanic men, and then um, the same groups for um, women. Um, what I found was when we use the NHANES data, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data, and we look at the current data as opposed to the data taken back from the 50s and 60s when they actually do the BMI charts based upon mm-hmm. the actuary data, is that we actually, for men, shift the BMI downwards, meaning 30 plus is considered to be someone with obesity. But if you look at those comorbid conditions um, in men across race and ethnicity here in the U.S., the BMI cutoff that actually predisposed them to risk actually is all below 30 consistently, interestingly enough. Um, For women, um, a little bit different story comes out. For Black women particularly, compared to um, white and Hispanic women, 
um, the BMI curve shifts up a smidge. So actually it's about 31 or 30 for anyone that has dyslipidemia or hypertension. So it shows you that even using current data, that if we're looking at this height weight, you know, tying in actual disease processes gives you a little bit more accuracy. Um, but let's, let's look a little bit beyond this idea of just BMI. What really matters when I'm looking at the health status of a patient, and it's not just their weight and where they fall, it's where that weight is distributed. So there, this is the difference, Max, between visceral adipose tissue and subcutaneous adipose tissue. And what we know study after study that have been published is that for both um, children and adults, when we're looking at who has higher levels of visceral adipose tissue, which is those that, that fat that's around the organs that causes metabolic disease actually is much higher in whites than in blacks consistently across the board. We have lower levels of visceral adipose tissue. We do have higher levels of subcutaneous adipose tissue. That's the tissue max that's typically in the um, hip, buttock, and thigh region, which accounts for the fact that we are often differently shaped um, in those regions. Um, and that actually is a little bit more beneficial. So when I'm talking to patients, and my patients can tell you this, I have over 2,000 patients, I never will focus per se on the number on the scale. I do like to get them out of obesity, but I care more about where that weight's distributed. I'm looking at whether it's centrally um, located in that stomach region, or is it in the hip, buttock, and thigh region? And so I'm measuring every office visit, I'm measuring what's going on in that central region, at the umbilicus, at the belly button, seeing if we're meeting criteria to look at predisposition to metabolic disease and illness like diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. So I think we have to pay attention to just not the BMI. I think we, we get fixated on, on the BMI and we get fixated on the number on the scale, but it's much more, it's much more holistic to think about where's that weight distributed because that will give us more information about the risk associated with that excess fat. Got it. So waist to hip ratio. Yeah, waist to hip ratio, but I would say even you don't even have to do that. I literally, you know, if you're looking at ATP3 guidelines, if you're looking at a waist circumference, so measuring at the umbilicus, right, at the belly button, that's a good point. If you have a waist circumference of 35 inches or less for women, that's ideal. And for men, less than 40 inches. I would say that that's really as bare bones as you can get. You don't need anything fancy. All you need is a lovely tape measure, cost you about, what, 50 cents? Um, <laughs> and then that's where you want to focus your attention. I, I do pay attention. I, like I said, as an obesity medicine physician, I pay attention to weight and weight status, but I pay attention in the context of where it's distributed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talking about clinic visits, I read this book uh, by Roxane Gay Hunger, uh, mm-hmm. and it kind of rocked my world, right? I read the book at the end mm-hmm. of my first year of medical school, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where we start sort of like getting into the nitty gritty of like what predisposes you for, you know, insert given um, high risk um, condition. Right. And, you, you know, she talks a lot about, uh, you know, how doctors, you know, basically treat people with obesity, um, you know, even if, you know, even if they show up for something completely unrelated to their weight. So um, I think in, in one of the stories, she talks about, I think, twisting her ankle or something like that. Uh, she shows up, you know, to this clinic and it is her weight that's being fixated upon. And mm-hmm. that's a story far too common that, I've, you know, I've heard many a Black women, you know, in the public you know, in the public light and black, black women in my life just mention that, mm-hmm. you know, whenever I go to the doctor, um, you know, they, you know, they always want to say, well, we got to get you to lose some weight, even if I showed up for a sore throat. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I guess, what do you say about that issue, right? Rick mm-hmm. Marge, like in medicine, both mm-hmm. the primary care or even 
even like sports injury. So, I mean, you know, uh, you, you're talking to an you know, OBC medicine doc, right? So, uh, you know, first one of the first fellowship trained OBC medicine docs in the world. So, you know, obviously I'm going to look at weight as, as an important factor because I do think that if we can address obesity, mm -hmm. then we drop the mini downstream. We know that at least 100 associated illnesses, most cancers associated with obesity, mm -hmm. diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, et cetera. And so a lot of times what we as docs do, and part of this is our poor training, um, is that we we talk about the patient's obesity as a, as a personal responsibility issue, like we talked about a little bit earlier. So, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if you just got a handle on this, because, oh, you should be doing better with either eating or exercising, because that's, of course, how simple it is. We know it's much more complex. Mm -hmm. Then you could do a better job. The problem is, is we are inadequately trained as docs to care for this large segment of the population. So I talked about black women and our obesity rates, but the reality is, is that 42.4% of U.S. adults have obesity. But Max, have you had any education at Yale Medical School where it's directly about the pathophysiology of obesity and actually how to treat the patient that has obesity? That's the question for you. I luckily took bariatric surgery as one of my <laughs> surgery. That was just the bariatric surgery. What about all the patients that don't go to surgery? Fair. No, I mean like yeah. as part of the journal club of the yeah. rotation, right. we talked about the pathology of, of obesity. I don't know whether everyone, I don't remember whether in the preclinical curriculum that was like a staple. But right. and is, it, is, it, is it in any tests you've taken so far? Step no, one, you've taken not, not, Right, exactly. Not, yeah. so, so it's the biggest chronic disease, no pun intended, but nobody knows that if you should actually publish a paper in the International Journal of Obesity, where I looked at obesity education and medical schools, residencies, and fellowships throughout the entire world over the last 15 years, and no one does a good job. So mm. now you have a patient coming in ex-black woman, ex-black man, whomever, and not me, but most people, you come in and the first thing we think is, oh, let me, let me, we're going to focus on this issue, but I don't even mm -hmm. know how to deal with that issue, but I'm going to put that back on you, right? Because you need to be doing something better about that. And then you leave the office, you're like, well, gosh, you're not having an ankle sprain. And then this person is telling me I need to do something about my obesity, but it's not like I've been, been, been thinking about that or what to do. And you feel powerless and you feel angry. And that's the narrative that, that happens all too commonly because of our inadequate training. What we do need to happen is that you, Max, on day one, begin to learn about type 2 diabetes at Yale School of Medicine, right? Mm -hmm. You did. It just is what it is. You learned about hypertension. You learned about depression. You learned about a lot of key things. But the biggest chronic disease that we deal with, where I can potentially treat it and get rid of many other issues, we didn't learn. So even someone like me that was vested in, in doing this work, as I sought this information out in medical school or in residency, I wasn't getting any feedback. I had to go and seek out a special fellowship where I spent three years to really get into the nuances, the nitty gritty of how do I treat this patient? And then what I do now is I go out and I talk to communities, um, go and talk to other physicians to try to teach them just a smidge of what I know so they can do a better job of caring for their patients. What is the language used when a person comes in for something unrelated? Now, I will say this, Max, I was criticized as a resident for often including obesity on the problem list of a patient, let's say that was coming in patient for asthma, which is associated with obesity, but another story. But if I put something like allergic rhinitis or any other um, issue that was in their problem list, I was never criticized. Obviously, I'm thinking about the obesity and the way it potentially relates to their current presentation. Um, but my attending physicians at the time that had no training didn't know how to navigate that space. 
Um, I came and rotated here as a fourth year resident um, in MedPeds um, and in one month learned more than I had learned my entire medical career about obesity. Now, when I went back to South Carolina to take that information back to my attendings, they didn't have that knowledge. And so I felt like I was in some ways were providing negligent care to my patients because now I was informed with this new information on this very disenfranchised population in inner city Columbia, South Carolina that I was not able to use because my attending physicians had no knowledge base to complement it. So I was having to do the exact same thing that I've been doing that I saw that was wrong in terms of helping these patients that struggle with obesity grossly. That's a very long answer to your question, but I think it shows you that if, if physicians aren't trained and if they know just as much as the lay population about this disease process, you, the, the problem is, is that they're going to continue to see people coming in and having these encounters with their docs that usually aren't very um, warm and fuzzy, I think for lack of a better way of saying it with regards to their weight status. Mm -hmm. And so, because, you know, we, now we know, I mean, we've known for quite a, quite a while, there mm -hmm. are treatments, right, for obesity. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, as an obesity doctor, sort of like um, find that subtle point, or I guess like happy medium with your patients when thinking about, uh, you know, body positivity, but also mm -hmm. the fact that obesity truly is, right, something that predisposes you to um, like long-term chronic issues? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a fine line, right, that you have to mm -hmm. kind of, you have to, to navigate. But what I, one of the things I do is a lot of times, unfortunately, my patients, um, who are all patients that have obesity, have a lot of negative self-talk. So they'll come in and say something very negative or derogatory about themselves. I will stop the appointment at that very time and say, let's reword that. And they'll be like, oh, no, 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 it's me I'm talking about. So, yes, but you're making me uncomfortable talking about yourself in that way. So let's change that narrative. So I begin to help them change the narrative about themselves. And mm -hmm. even in doing that, that's supporting that I am not evaluating their aesthetics based upon their weight status. Mm -hmm. I care about treating their disease, but I'm not looking at, you know, what outfit they're wearing, what, you know, that, that's not my focus. My focus is on treating the disease that is obesity and getting them to the happiest, healthiest self they can be. Mm -hmm. I don't want them comparing themselves to the patient that left my room before, the patient that comes after, even within families, because I take care of both children and adults. So I take care of a lot of families that um, some of them taking care of the kid, the parent, and the grandparent. I don't care about what's happening individually. I want to focus on that person. I tell them they are the most important person in the room. I am their coach in this situation. I'm the doctor, but I'm the coach, and they are the, they're the star player. I have to focus on getting them to their best self. So when they come in, they're like, oh, doc, I want to be X number of pounds. I say, up, up, up. nope, not doing that. Because <laughs> let's say they, let's say they wanted to lose hundred pounds. Let's just say this is an often. I'm like, oh yeah, I want to lose hundred pounds. And I'm like, okay, so they have this fixation on hundred. Let's say they lose 97 pounds. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I don't really care about that number, the number, but they are going to feel like a failure because they didn't lose hundred. Mm-hmm. And so I never let them, they can tell, they can do in their own mind a number, but I don't ever go by a number because I have no idea what their physiology is going to do with whatever treatment we you select. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And often there's a lot of trial and error, right? Like I tried this therapy, may or may not work, let's try another therapy. Maybe we add several therapies and it's finding kind of that special sauce for that person. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes a long time. And a lot of times once we find it, we stick with it, right? Because those treatments for this chronic disease require chronic therapy. 
Mm-hmm. So I let patients know that this is, this is not something where we're not trying to get you into whatever skinny jeans for a reunion. I don't really care about that. I care about what happens today. Yeah, so reunion is real. <laughs> right. Well, I'm way beyond that. Um, <laughs> don't want to go there. Um, but I want to, I want to have this narrative continued so that in 10 years in 20 years in 30 years, we are talking about sustainability and maintenance of whatever we've accomplished. I'm not going to throw you on the next fad diet. I'm not going to throw you on the next shake program. That's not my goal. I want something that's sustainable over the life course. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're talking about it in that way, that changes the narrative, making sure that they are thinking of themselves positively because often we are our own worst critics mm-hmm. um, and changing that narrative every moment that I have, whether it's via telemedicine, whether it's in person, whether it's via message that I send to them about something. And so I think that that's important for us to to think about when we're talking with patients, mm-hmm. when I'm talking with patients, is this idea that body positivity can still exist. So I'm going to end with this. So let's say a patient comes into me at 550 pounds and people are like, oh, that's ridiculous, Dr. Timber. Well, that, that is not uncommon in my, my specialty. And let's say we get 200 pounds off. All right. So we went from 550, they're now down to 350. Now, the assumption that someone would make if they were walking down the street is, oh, that person needs to do something about their weight. They have Having no idea. No idea. Mm -hmm. that they have lost 250 pounds. And this is the narrative of several of my patients. I know, I can tell you, wow, I know what they've done. And I acknowledge and applaud the work that they've done to get off 250 pounds and maintain it. It is not for me to say that, oh, at that level, they still struggle and I'm there to support them as best as I can, but maybe their body stops there. I shouldn't judge them negatively because in many ways they have significantly changed their risk factors, even mm-hmm. with that degree of loss. So does that, hopefully that helps you, Max. No, it totally does. I think, I mean, I remember one of the discussions that I, we had uh, when I rotated on bariatric surgery was that, you know, if you can lose even 10% of your body weight, at, you know. Five to 10%. At, right. That, yes. that has a significant uh, impact on uh, morbidity and mortality risk for the future. Um, so I want to talk about treatment, but before we talk about treatment, I... Um... Actually, I have a point, Max, I want to interrupt you. Yes. There's a really, really important study that I think um, that a lot of people don't know about that I always make sure that I bring up. Mm-hmm. So there was a large study that looked at children born to moms and dads pre and post the mother having bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she had a child born before mm-hmm. and then she had a child born after. So same mom and dad, same genetic profile. Mm-hmm. And what we saw in the children that were born after the mom had bariatric surgery was a threefold decrease in severe obesity in those children. Mm. We saw macrosomia being an 80% decrease in macrosomia. For my guests who don't know what macrosomia is, do you mind telling yeah. them? <laughs> so macrosomia is the babies that are born basically too big. Um, mm-hmm. they, they're, they're too large. Um, we call large for gestational age, meaning like mm-hmm. at the time they're born, they, they carry, they're much larger than you would anticipate. Um, they also, if you're looking at parameters like glucose, which is blood sugar or leptin, which is a hormone, um, all of these parameters were significantly improved their lipid profile. Lipid is cholesterol in those children born after the mom had surgery. So now what's important to note is that after bariatric surgery, most people still have obesity. They may still have mild, moderate, even severe, depending upon where they started. But we changed that intrauterine environment for that mom so that when she went into that pregnancy, even though we didn't change the genetics, we changed the outcomes for 
these children that had obesity. And so, or in, in terms of their, their likelihood or risk factors for obesity. So there's ways for us to modify in such a way that it has huge impacts on the next generation. I remember reading in that study and, and, and this conversation has come up quite a bit amongst mm -hmm. MFM thinking about, well, maybe there actually needs to be like a sub, subspecialty amongst either just MFM or OBGYN writ large, like OBGYN plus obesity. Well, actually, several, I can tell you of several, there's um, one of my colleagues here at, at Harvard, she's now um, at the BI, Beth Israel Deaconess, she was at the Brigham, has actually gotten certified in obesity medicine um, because she works specifically within this realm um, and she wants to know how to provide the best care and will often, you know, consider for moms, you know, pre, you know, intervention for, yeah, for like IVF, IUI, et cetera to work on their individual weight status with a trained obesity medicine specialist first and then mm -hmm. come into that realm. So I can tell you that there are OBGYNs doing that work um, now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, now, in our discussion, we've talked about obesity clearly as a disease. And I feel like in the general population, I, I, we don't necessarily consider obesity to be mm -hmm. a disease, but rather just like a state. Uh, yeah. And it's seems to me that there's sort of like a lapse in science communication from Absolutely. obesity specialists and um, and I guess the rest of the world in that we don't, especially at least, you know, I'm surrounded by black people, uh, yeah. especially within our community where okay. oh, perhaps, absolutely. perhaps um, yes, we acknowledge that, you know, weight is it, you know, like being overweight or, uh, or having, having obesity. obesity yeah. um, uh, is an issue medically, but not necessarily that it is itself a disease. Um, how do we sort of like change that. that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it, I mean, the part of the reason why I told you I do countless interviews and the reason why I really take all of the opportunities, because I have no idea if your listening base will be different than another group. And so when you mm -hmm. hear this person like me constantly saying this, you're like, what is she talking about? So then people then go and Google me, right? Thankfully, I'm the only Fatima Cody Stanford that exists. And then you get, you happen, <laughs> you happen upon a lecture or a TV show or something I did. And one of the things that, um, that actually just came out, Max, I want you to take a look if you get a chance. I'm on PBS. There was a special called The Truth About Fat. It just oh, came yes. out on April the 8th. And we talk about fat as an organ. A lot of people think it's just fat, right? Like right. It's fat, like you see, like if you clean in chicken, you see fat. Yes, it looks kind of like that but it actually communicates with the brain. And one of the mm -hmm. things I talk about in this special is how the brain is really what regulates our weight. Much like how we're thirsty and we decide, oh, let's drink a beverage. And then we don't sit there and like, okay, let me measure. We're going to drink four ounces of water until I'm you know, finished. That's what we do with, with, with weight status, right? We try to go measure things and we start look at calories. And it's not about that. It's about really listening to what the body's saying, but the brain ends up winding. So the brain communicates with different organs particularly our fat tissue, our large intestine, our small intestine, our pancreas, our stomach, sends signals back to our brain, Max, to tell us not only how much to eat, but it also tells us how much to store. Mm. So that is not a willpower issue. It's literally the brain communicating with these. And so patients that are post-surgery, since you talked about bariatric surgery, afterwards, a lot of times after surgery, they're like, wow, I really, I don't desire these things. And they actually are tangibly able to tell you the differences in not only what they desire, but their fullness, what we call hunger and satiety, how full they feel. That's not something they're actively trying to do. Their body is telling them to do that because when you do a surgery, you are changing that brain gut communication. Mm -hmm. So then people ask me, oh, Dr. Shane, what about those people that regain? After time, much like if I were to go and chop off your arm, 
you know, that would hurt initially. And you'd be like, gosh, this doctor's chopping off my arm. She's a little bit um, different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but over time you get, you get used to it, right? Like you're like, okay, well, I know how to navigate the world with one arm, you know, like if you've never had that as an issue. And very much like the further we get from bariatric surgery, the more the body gets accustomed to going back to what it wants to do. The brain, you're again winning. And so we can modify your brain wanting to shift back. This idea of metabolic adaptation, Max, which is Mm -hmm. when people try to restrict or overexercise and do all these things, they're able to acutely drop themselves, but the body adjusts accordingly. So if you're looking at things, people like the Biggest Loser contestants, 95% of them regained all plus more of their weight because the brain wins. The brain sees the body mm. as a gas tank, okay? Think of it as a gas tank. Some of us have the gas tank the size of a big army tank. Like our body wants to defend a weight that's that high. So once you've gotten up to 500 pounds the brain and stayed there, the brain knows that. And it wants to do whatever it can to compensate to get you back to 500 pounds, whether that's dropping your metabolic rate whatever it needs to do to make it get back there. Because it sees anything less than that as not full. Now, there's some people that are very lean. This is obviously a minority of people. And they try to eat to gain all this weight. And their bodies are like, nope, I want to stay here. Because their gas tank <laughs> is the size of a Prius, right? They have like a little bitty gas tank. And so they try to overeat. And so sometimes they can shift that gas tank up a little bit. But it's not going to be the same as, same as that person that has that army tank. Mm-hmm. And so when people try to lose weight, they're like, oh, well, I'm very successful. And I'm like, really? Are you that successful? Because you haven't maintained it their brain is adapting. And so then we come in with treatments, other treatments to help adjust how their brain sees weight. Medications, for example, affect how the brain sees weight. Surgery affects how the brain sees weight. Not everyone needs those, but many people do to adjust where the brain is. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about briefly, I want to talk about, I want to get into treatments and like nuances and disparities and access to these treatments. Absolutely. All right. So when we're talking about treatments and I'm talking about across the age spectrum, we have obviously behavioral or lifestyle modification, which Mm -hmm. might include things like, you know, diet modification. I don't really focus on calories. I focus on how processed the diet is. So I want Mm -hmm. more lean proteins, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables as my predominant sources. Physical activity um, is more about maintaining one's weight status. Even if you have excess weight, it, it doesn't often drive significant loss, but it does help us to maintain. I think it's important for us to know that. Sleep quality and duration um, play a large role um, in how the body regulates weight. So looking at sleep, looking at medications that we as docs prescribe, a lot of the meds we prescribe cause weight gain. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to rattle off a quick list that I usually do um, really quickly. So if you guys are listening, just kind of check your med list. Lithium, Depakote, Tegretol, Celexis, Cymbalta, Effexor, Paxil, Prozac, Ambien, Trazodone, Lunesta, Gabapentin, Glyburide, Glipizide, Glomepiride, Long-Term Insulin, Long-Term Prednisone, just to name a few of drugs that can cause significant weight gain for patients. Um, so those are things that I want to focus on initially, right? So those are things that we're adjusting whatever, whatever is on board and making sure that we're supporting a lower weight status. Now, we, then we can graduate therapy. Um, and begin to think about medications that we actually utilize to treat obesity. These medications mostly act on the brain um, and act on the hypothalamus and how the hypothalamus is regulating weight. So there's medications. Um, Medications aren't widely used in pediatrics, although I disagree with that thought process, and I do use them for pediatric patients. Um, And I'll tell you why I disagree, is that we have now, the American Academy of Pediatrics says, um, as recently as October of 2019, came out with a strong position statement talking about the need for early intervention for metabolic and bariatric surgery um, without a lower age limit for, for adolescents and children that have obesity. Um, 
we have a lovely statement for for um, now bariatric surgery, but no statement for medications. And I usually think that there's a, you know, we don't go from and kids we go from basically behavior to surgery, but what happened to medications in between? In between, right? Yeah. So and for adults, it's not the same issue. Um, we go from behavioral therapies, like we talked about, to medication to surgery. Um, but what I want to tell you is that if we're looking at something like bariatric surgery. There are two major stigmas and or biases that avoid people getting access to care. Only one to two percent of patients that meet criteria for metabolic and bariatric surgery, regardless of race, get it here in the United States. So that mm -hmm. means that 99 percent don't get it. It is even more pronounced of an issue, and I've published this um, with one of my residents, Numa Perez, um, here. Um, the racial disparities in access to care for both is pediatrics, which is the paper I did with him. And I think I just read adults. that paper about yeah. kids with Medicaid insurance or and don't get it. But white kids yeah. with Medicaid get it. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. So it shows you there is disparate access to the same therapies that we know are our gold standard therapies for even um, with the same insurance coverage, which is crazy. Exact same insurance coverage. That's why we we looked at it that way. And I, I have to thank um, Numa for coming up with this, you know, he's, he's really um, into like, why is this disproportionate issue expecting his community as a Hispanic community and then my community, the black community. Um, and so what we see is that, yes, we have treatments that are available. We have improper access to these treatments in communities of colors across the domain of therapies from behavioral and lifestyle to pharmacotherapy, which means medication to surgery. And so it's, it's, it's problematic. And so disparities do indeed exist, despite the fact that we talked about the disproportionate burden of obesity within our communities. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, and so it, is there an element, I guess, of stigma um, that, I, that perhaps needs to be broken down? Or, or is there even a difference in how we look at surgery in some communities versus others? Well, you know, actually, none of the studies have really done a great job of, of really delineating that piece. Even my studies, I would say not necessarily, but I would say that across, so the stigma really is more around obesity than actually at a, a gender and or racial ethnic level that people that have severe obesity, and I've published this in obesity, um, don't believe that they need surgery. And then mm. people that are much leaner that have mild obesity they think they need surgery like yesterday. So there's discordance, what we call weight discordance. People that have mm -hmm. severe obesity, absolutely never surgery. People with mild obesity, surgery yesterday. I need to switch their brains. <laughs> the problem is I can't switch their brains. Um, and that, so that is pervasive throughout the entire community with obesity. So I think that that stigma against um, surgery and or medications is this idea that, oh, I must have failed because I needed to use this. But interestingly enough, if you came in with appendicitis or if you came in with gallstones and need to have your gallbladder out, nobody accuses you of, of being a failure and you needing to have surgery. There's different tools in our tool bag and some people need more tools than others. So much like when we're applying to go to college, some people go and take the SAT, they don't even have to study, they get a perfect score, that's great for them, but that's a very small minority. Many of us need to take a course and do several courses and study to get a certain grade. And even some people after doing five courses still don't get a grade. Does that mean that they're a failure? It just means that they required more attention. I said I try to normalize this idea of treatment for patients with obesity. It's not a failing. It's not a failing. It's just you needed more tools and it's okay. Are we going to blame you if you need three different medications for your blood pressure? Do you feel like a failing if you need a thiazide diuretic and you need a beta blocker and you need a ACE inhibitor? 
No, you take the medications and you're like, okay, I need to treat my blood pressure. But as soon as I began to entertain medications for weight management, oh, no doc, I'm not going to do that. So we, we have these, these thoughts that are, that are um, unfortunate um, because they don't allow us to, to provide the best care when we, we do have access to those therapies. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I learned so much. It's just like, so I'm grateful. And, um, <laughs> I'd be happy to have you back for a further discussion on this topic. You're not a friend of the bot. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I just want to thank you so much. I really, um, right before I came on this call, I was talking to one of my division chiefs here at MTH. Um, about why I think service to the community is so important. Um, I can keep all this knowledge in my brain and that does nothing for anyone. I can give it with my select group of patients that get to see me. But if I give this to the larger community, we begin to really change the narrative, change the thought process. And that's what my goal is. Um, so I'm really thankful to have the opportunity to, to, to lend my voice to this conversation. Thank you all for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. You may access the pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at FlipScriptPod at F-L-I-P-S-C-R-I-P-T-P-O-D and myself at Max Jordan.